This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Burt Lair. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we're not really sure what we're doing at the moment. We had some plans, uh, I think we announced those in a previous episode, and unfortunately... We're not sure the plans might have gone sideways. So it's going to be a bit of a surprise what next week is going to be. We're sorry that we can't uh, allow you to watch it, but I'm sure it'll be something that you've probably seen a bunch of different times. And if you haven't, you probably should have. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode right on your podcast player direct there for you. Check them out. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, this is our 75th episode, and... Normally, we do one of the big movies on one of these every 25 or so. Uh, So far, we have done Casablanca for episode 50. We did a personal favorite, maybe not one of the biggest movies, but a personal favorite, Rio Bravo for our 25th episode. And we have some special plans for the 100th coming up. But The Wizard of Oz, I think most kids grow up having watched this movie For me, I think I watched it the first time in grade school, probably about third grade if I remember right, kind of in class is the best memory I have of it, but it's hard to tell uh, because it's felt like it's kind of always been with me. This is so ingrained in American culture as to movies that you know and automatically can name that, and for that matter, I know that despite it not necessarily being a kid's movie, it's a lot of kids' favorite movie, at least several that I know of. So I guess the the best place to start simply is, is what's your relationship to this, Dad? It was a movie I saw when I was a kid, when it was on television, because it would be broadcast on network TV about every other year uh, when I was a kid. And it's a movie that... You'd watch and you'd watch every couple of years. And then I bet I haven't seen the film in 25 or 30 years. There was a lot of the film when watching it again that I'd forgotten. But then there was also a lot of the film that has become so iconic and is just kind of part of the lexicon from the lion going, put him up, put him up, which is in like com- or cartoons constantly. And, and it's just something that kind of I've used uh, 
dozens of times. So it really has become more part of the culture than actually watching the movie. There's certain so many aspects of this that have just become so much embedded within the culture that uh, you have to almost watch the movie and go, oh, yeah, that's where it did come from, after all. When we go through quotes, I'm sure they're just going to ring a ton of bells for people as to things that they just remember about the movie. And I agree with you. There are certain portions of this movie that I guess I hadn't remembered. Uh, There's some pieces of the Munchkinland section that I wasn't uh, completely familiar with. And for that matter, it takes a long time to get to Oz. I don't remember that being the case. It it seemed, from my recollection, if I were to just describe this, because I haven't seen this movie probably in at least 10 years, if not more, I couldn't remember that it took her so long that she had to run away from home, that she meets the, I guess, the guy who ends up being the wizard in her dream out in the open, and he's this traveling, I don't know what you would call him, performer or entertainer. And at the same time that she comes back, then she gets hit, and then she goes off to Oz. But once you kind of get to Oz, I think for the most part, most people kind of know the general outline and storyline of that. You go through the the Munchkin land and the house falling on the Wicked Witch of the East and the ruby red slippers. And especially once you start going down the yellow brick road, most people pretty much could take from there and know exactly where this movie is going to go because it just certain terms you have to mention to people. Emerald City, the ruby red slippers, there's no place like home. I mean, you could start just going through it one after the other after the other as to just cultural touchstones that are so ingrained by this point. I mean, how many times have we not seen welcome mats? There's no place like home. I mean, it it is so ultimately ingrained due to everybody's general or generational love of this movie. And I think it has to do with a number of different factors that were not there at the time this was made or that they could have even understood was going to be the connection point emotionally for generations of people years and years after this. Well, I mean, even to the iconic line that I've used, I don't know how many times when it's raining out and your mother's worried about her hair or makeup. I'm melting! Well, how many times have I not referenced pay no attention to the man behind the curtain? Yes, usually about me, and especially in my office. And uh, I understand perfectly what you mean. Yes. The great and powerful Oz is scary in this just this floating head of fire. <laughs> Don't let it out the secret. Yeah. So let's just kick everything off, give everybody the context. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In Kansas, Dorothy Gale, Judy Garland, lives with her dog Toto on a farm belonging to her Aunt M and Uncle Henry. After the spiteful Ms. Omira Gulch, Margaret Hamilton, takes away Toto for biting her, Dorothy decides to run away to save her dog. Caught in a cyclone, Dorothy is whisked away to Munchkin Land in the Land of Oz. Seeking to return to Kansas, Glenda, the Good Witch of the North, gifts Dorothy ruby slippers and angers the Wicked Witch of the West who also wants them. However, to find her way home, Glinda tells Dorothy to follow 
the yellow brick road to the Emerald City, where she can ask the Wizard of Oz to help her. On her journey, Dorothy meets a scarecrow, Ray Bolger, who wants a brain, a tin woodman, Jack Haley, who seeks a heart, and a cowardly lion, Bert Lahr, who desires courage. Dorothy and her three unlikely companions travel to the Emerald City to find the wizard and help Dorothy to find home. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale. Frank Morgan as Professor Marvel, the gatekeeper, the carriage driver, the guard, and the Wizard of Oz. That's some uh, quadruple duty. Ray Bolger as Hunk slash the Scarecrow, Jack Haley as Hickory slash Tin Woodman, and Burt Lair as Zeke slash the Cowardly Lion. Billy Burke as Glinda the Good Witch, Margaret Hamilton as Miss Elmira Gulch slash the Wicked Witch of the West, Charlie Grapewin as Uncle Henry, Pat Walsh as Nico the Winged Monkey King, and Clara Blandick as Aunt M. Recognition for this movie. It was nominated for Best Picture, Art Direction, and Best Effects in 1939. It won for Best Original Score and Best Original Song, Over the Rainbow. Judy Garland also won an honorary Oscar as a juvenile for her work in This and Babes in Arms. This was listed as AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies number 6 in 1998. On AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills, it was number 43. On AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, the Wicked Witch of the West finished as the number 4 villain. AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs, number 1 was Over the Rainbow, and number 82 was Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy Gale, was number four. There's no place like home, Dorothy, was number 23. And I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too, by the Wicked Witch of the West, was number 99. AFI's Greatest Movie Musicals, it finished as number three. AFI's 100 Years 100 Chairs, it finished as number 26. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition in 2007, it finished as number 10. AFI's Top 10 of 10, it finished as the number one fantasy film. In 1989, the film was also one of the inaugural group of 25 films added to the National Film Registry list. In 1999, Rolling Stone's 100 Maverick Movies listed this as the number 20 film. In 1999 as well, Entertainment Weekly's 100 Greatest Films graded this as the number 32 film of all time. In 2002, Sight and Sound's Greatest Film Poll of Directors, usually the official barometer of the greatest movies of all time, at least those in the industry, it finished as the number 41 film of all time. In 2005, Total Films' 100 Greatest Films, this finished as number 83 on that list. In 2005, the British Film Institute ranked it second on its list of 50 films you should see by the age of 14 after Spirited Away. In 2006, the film placed 86th on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. In 2007, the film was listed on UNESCO's Memory of the World Register, one of the few films to do so. And also in 2007, The Observer ranked the film's songs and music at the top of its list of 50 greatest film soundtracks. According to MGM Records, during the film's initial release, it earned $2,048,000 in the U.S. and Canada and $969,000 in other countries throughout the world. 
for total earnings of 3017000 However, its high production cost, plus the cost of marketing, distribution, and other services, resulted in a loss of $1,145,000 for the studio. It did not show what MGM considered a profit until a 1949 re-release earned an additional $1.5 million, which equates to about $13 million in 2019. From 1959 until 1991, the film was telecast once every year, the one exception being 1963 when it was not telecast at all. And, according to the Library of Congress and multiple studies, it is the most seen film in movie history. Did you know? WISN-TV in Milwaukee, Wisconsin did not carry the network's yearly Oz telecast in 1961, the year WISN began its affiliation with CBS, running Green Bay Packers football instead. However, due to viewer outcry, WISN was able to get permission to run the film locally at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time on Christmas Eve. Did you know? Many of the Wicked Witch of the West scenes were either trimmed or deleted entirely, as Margaret Hamilton's performance was thought to be too frightening for audiences. Did you know? Judy Garland found it difficult to be afraid of Margaret Hamilton because she was such a nice lady off-camera. Did you know? The Munchkins are portrayed by the singer Midgets, not named for their musical abilities, but for Leo Singer, their manager. The troupe came from Europe, many of them were Jewish, and a number of them took advantage of the trip to stay in the U.S. in order to escape the Nazis. Professional singers dubbed most of their voices, as many of the Midgets couldn't speak English or sing well. Only two are heard speaking with their real-life voices, the ones who give Dorothy flowers after she has climbed into the carriage. Did you know? The iconic ruby slippers are now at the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of American History and are so popular that the carpet in front of them has had to be replaced numerous times due to wear and tear. Did you know? The famous Surrender Dorothy skywriting scene was done using a tank of water and a tiny model which attached to the end of a long hypodermic needle. The syringe was filled with milk, the tip of the needle was put into the tank, and the words were written in reverse while being filmed from below. There was an added phrase to Surrender Dorothy which was, or die, but it was cut before the movie premiered. Did you know? The horses in Emerald City Palace were colored with jello crystals. The relevant scenes had to be shot quickly before the horses started to lick it off. <laughs> Did you know? The scarecrow face makeup that Ray Bolger wore consisted in part of a rubber prosthetic with a woven pattern to suggest burlap cloth. By the time the film was finished, the prosthetic had left a pattern of lines on his face that took more than a year to vanish. Did you know? Ray Bolger was originally cast as the Tin Man. However, he insisted that he would rather play the Scarecrow. His childhood idol, Fred Stone, had originated that role on stage in 1902. Buddy Ebsen had been cast as the Scarecrow and now switched roles with Bolger. Unbeknownst to him, however, the makeup for the Tin Man contained aluminum dust, which ended up coating Ebsen's lungs. He also had an allergic reaction to it. One day, he was physically unable to breathe and had to be rushed to the hospital. The part was immediately recast, and MGM gave no public reason why Ebsen was being replaced. The actor considered this the biggest humiliation he ever endured and a personal affront. When Jack Haley took over the part of the Tin Man, he wasn't told why Ebsen had dropped out, and, in the meantime, the Tin Man makeup was changed from aluminum dust to aluminum paste as one of its key components. However, his vocals remain whenever the song We're Off to See the Wizard is played. Jack Haley's vocals 
were never used during the song, but were used for if I only had a heart and if I only had the nerve. Ebsen's vocals are also heard in the extended version of If I Were the King of the Forest, though the spoken segment has Jack Haley. Although Ebsen didn't appear in the film, surviving still photos show him taking part in the Wicked Witch's castle sequence. Did you know? Burt Lair's costume weighed 90 pounds. It was made from a real lion skin and very hot. The arc lights used to light the set often raised the temperature to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Lair would sweat so profusely that the costume would be soaked by the end of the day. There were two people whose only job was to spend the night drying it for the next day. It was dry cleaned occasionally, but usually, in the words of one of the crew members, it reeked. (laughs) Did you know? In the famous poppy field scene in which Dorothy fell asleep, the snow used in those camera shots was made from 100% industrial grade chrysotile asbestos despite the fact that the health hazards of asbestos had been known for several years. Did you know? In 1989, Dorothy Louise Gage was born to the brother and sister-in-law of Maud Gage Baum, wife of author L. Frank Baum. When little Dorothy died exactly five months later, Maud was heartbroken. Baum was just finishing The Wonderful Wizard of Oz and, to comfort his wife, named his heroine after Dorothy, changing her last name to Gail in his second book. Dorothy Gage was buried in Evergreen Memorial Cemetery in Bloomington, Illinois, where her grave was forgotten until 1996 when it was rediscovered. When Mickey Carroll, one of the last existing munchkins from the movie, learned of the discovery, he was eager to replace her deteriorated grave marker with a new one created by his own monument company. The new stone was dedicated in 1997 and the children's section of the cemetery renamed the Dorothy L. Gage Memorial Garden in the hope that bereaved families would be comforted in thinking of their lost children as being with Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, Dad. So, I don't know if there's any one good way to describe this movie, but (laughs) I guess what do you think it's about? I guess in large part it's about understanding that people ultimately have the ability or have abilities and have circumstances that they don't realize they have. For example, the Tin Man already had a heart. It just was a matter of him realizing what the heart was. The uh, Scarecrow had a brain. It was just a matter of having the, the recognition from others that he had the brain. The Lion had courage, but it was the realization that courage does not exist always that courage is situational. It's kind of a realization that people have abilities that they think they don't, that sometimes come out in certain circumstances and in realization of, uh, of the events around them, that they rise to the level necessary in order to accomplish certain things. It, it, it's more about understanding that you have certain attributes, certain traits, certain abilities that you don't necessarily recognize in and of yourself. And you need to sometimes evaluate and think about the fact that you have those abilities that you may not readily see, but others do. I would agree with you completely on that. I think that a lot of this movie is in the ending, finding the courage, the heart, the brain to do anything we want to accomplish in order to make our way home. 
all of the attributes that everyone desires or the things we've had with us all along. I, I think that's really the the true message, and it can be somewhat of an inspiration to children in that sense to dream big and to reach for what is possible because you have the things you think you're missing sometimes within. On a much more graded down level, I mean, it's really about a girl getting lost in a magical fantasy land, helped by three unlikely partners desperately trying to find her way home. I mean, that, that's the very basic portion of things. But how many movies aren't about just trying to find your way home? Agreed. I mean, ultimately, that is kind of home either in, in reality or as a metaphor. So, best performer... I know that we kind of briefly talked about this over the weekend. Who did you have down? Because I think you and I are going to generally disagree on most of these topics. Uh, my best performer is uh, Victor Fleming, the director. Interesting choice. Okay. Uh, Fleming uh, also directed Gone with the Wind. Uh, it was the well, ultimate. Well, he's one of like four. Correct. But he was considered the primary one when it was all said and done, I, I just was amazed. I mean, everything from Munchkin land to the, uh, to the monkey people, you know, the, the winged monkeys and such, uh, he had to coordinate so much and oversee so much in order to make this film and to make sure the visuals, I mean, cause this was huge that it was shot in Technicolor, which was not well, well, uh, known at the time that it was, done. I mean, it was kind of innovative and the bright colors and knowing how the camera should be and what the lighting and every aspect, this was a monster of an undertaking on his part to coordinate. And then you're dealing with a child actor, you're dealing with uh, song and dance men who are not normally actors, but are who are stage performers or vaudevillians. And you're trying to get all of them to perform and to do musical numbers and to have everything work and to build it into one solid movie. So I just was amazed at how much effort it took for him to organize this film to get it to work, to get it to done and to do it in such a way that it was well-timed, it was well-paced, it was well-done, the visual was great, every aspect of it was quality. You know, we've talked on a lot of different episodes of watching these movies differently, doing it through a critical eye, and the art direction, the scene setting, the costuming, all the bright colors for knowing exactly especially in the contrast, I think a lot of what the notoriety of this movie is, is the difference between the black and white to the Technicolor and really putting that on display. It's extremely stark when you walk into Oz for the first time. And I think there is a certain sense of wonder when it comes about it. You had made mention a couple of weeks back of films that we'd like to see re-released in theaters. I think this would be a good one for that exact reason being able to see the the size of everything that's going on in such a grandiose scale. Because for the filming of what this was, this is a larger-than-life set 
and movie, especially for the time. There's only one other movie from the same year that could compete on this level of scale, and that was Gone with the Wind. Also equally known to be one of the great movies of all time, and one of the most widely seen movies of all time. And I don't think it's coincidence that both of them were shot in color and shared directors and studios. So the accomplishment of trying to pull this off at the same time in the same year is extraordinary to me. Uh, I didn't have Fleming down necessarily as my best performer. Instead, I went in a different direction, and it's because for a lot of kids, this might be one of their first movies. And as such, a lot of the tormentors of little kids is either the winged monkeys, or in this case, the Wicked Witch of the West. And for having very few scenes, Margaret Hamilton creates such an iconic character and is able to ruthlessly make you terrified of something that should seemingly be so campy. Even now, no witch should be in green like that and have that weird prosthetic nose and fly around on a broom and talk in such a volume. But the way she's able to pull it off still makes it somewhat terrifying and villainous and vile. Just It's like a pure description of evil without somehow going over the top. Like, I, I don't know how she straddles the line. It, it, she doesn't even really approach it. But you think that she probably should. I, it's just one of the great roles ever performed by somebody that you're able to play a villain just that well and that menacingly that it sticks with you even when she's not on screen. She's always a threat throughout the course of your time in Oz. I think that's a very good point, and I agree wholeheartedly with your assessment. I didn't have her down. I think I, I thought seriously about it. I figured possibly you were going to go that route, so I didn't on purpose just so that we could cover more. I remember Margaret Hamilton well into the 60s doing character parts on television and uh, even in some movies. She had a long career playing uh, in in film and television and always did everything seemingly so well. She was a consummate actor and uh, did so well at so many different things, but this obviously was her crowning achievement. It's hard to have such an iconic role that you play brilliantly like this, and I think she embodies the tormentor of kids along with the winged monkeys. Uh, secondary performer, I went in a slightly odd direction, but I thought it was a lot of the little things about his performance that I just enjoyed. It's the small frills and what he does with some of the very subconscious movements and or sounds that he makes. I went with Burt Lair, uh, the cowardly lion. The... And just the little, like, purrs or yips that he makes... And just, okay. like, creates such a goofy character and turns on a dime from being, like, uh, coming after them as the lion to all of a sudden she slaps him. And one slap and he, like, just melts into putty. And he straddles <laughs> and goes back and forth with this character. I, I thought that he, it, it almost was to a level, I wish I would have been able to nominate him for Charismatic. I thought I had some somebody more charismatic, 
unfortunately. So I ended up slotting him into best secondary as a result of that, which is kind of odd. It's usually the other way around. But I, I don't know. There was just some aura with how he played the character that it was just so silly and goofy that you wanted to hug him almost. My best secondary performance was Frank Morgan. I, I thought that uh, his portrayal of the wizard was, I, to me, the last part of the film is made by him and by his uh, manipulation of uh, Dorothy and the three uh, companions and by how he then transitions into explaining everything and all aspects of, you know, how they have the things they're seeking already. And I, I just loved his character. And maybe it's partly too, because in my research, I happened to find a passage that Frank Morgan was renowned in Hollywood for always carrying a briefcase. And most people assumed that it was Frank Morgan was a very studious and professional actor always working with scripts and notes and everything. In fact, uh, Frank Morgan created an entire bar that he could carry in a briefcase and so he could make cocktails for himself whenever he wanted. Needless to say, Frank Morgan died in his mid-50s of cirrhosis. But still, uh, maybe that's partly why I love the performance because my guess is he was gassed through most of the film. And I think there's an element of that you could probably see in his performance. <laughs> uh, his cheeks were awfully rosy at times. So then where did you go with most charismatic? Uh, I don't know how you couldn't go with Judy Garland. Simply because she had such a, or became such a cultural aspect. I mean, she became such a huge star. And ultimately, such a tragic figure. And, you know, she captures the imagination of the public even today. Even to the uh, film with uh, Renee Zellweger that was out a couple of years ago that she won Best Actress for. People are still fascinated by her and her story and her rise from Grand Rapids, Minnesota to uh, Hollywood stardom. And her friendship with Mickey Rooney and her long career ultimately cut short by alcohol and drugs and uh, her relationship with the director Victor uh, Minnelli, her daughter. I mean, it, she just carries so much in Hollywood lore from throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s that she was more than a movie star. Uh, she was a, a movie icon. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for her even now. You did mention the film Judy. I don't know if she has quite the same level since this has not been a regular yearly showing since the early 90s, as I indicated. But I think to a certain group of people and multiple generations up until that point, and it's now been 30 years since that's been regularly or annually shown on television, I would say that this is still... Somebody that, if you mentioned her name, several generations of people would know exactly who you're talking about and be able to name her specifically for this role. Obviously, being father and son, we have very similar interests and such, and we're both... It's not like we have a lot of diversity here, but what we do have is an age... We're not diverse? 
Yes, we we have an age difference, and that is a significant portion because for my generation, Judy Garland, even though she died when I was just a child, I think she died in 65 or 66, so I would have been like two or three years of age at the time, but she was still a huge star even at that point, and everybody knew her, so to my generation, she's much more iconic than obviously yours. Yeah, and I think that makes sense for a starring role that occurred almost 80-some years ago at this point, 82. But I did not go with her for Most Charismatic. Okay. I went with somebody who I thought was oddly, despite not being the human in the movie, the most engaging and impressive performance in this movie. I went with Terry the Dog, Toto. (laughs) the amount of stunts that that dog does in just crawling around on stuff and being basically manhandled all over the place being able to follow them around um, being able to bark and do certain things that you really shouldn't be able to do with most dogs i thought that it is the revolving action for the first act of the movie and realistically, it's the thing that ends up pretty much uh, saving the day at multiple points in the movie. I think that more kids are drawn to this because and are more terrified of the winged monkeys and of the Wicked Witch because they don't want them to steal their puppies. (laughs) Okay. All right. So best scenes. Oddly enough, I I don't have a ton of scenes in this one. I think that if you're starting to think of certain scenes, I really had to kind of wrestle with what is and isn't a scene because there were certain large set piece sequences more than there were specific scenes. But I'll give you first crack at uh, the first one to nominate. What do you have down? Uh, Munchkin Land. Yeah, that was the same one for me too. I just thought that uh, the whole... Uh, visual and the music and the performance and everything about it just was incredibly memorable. And uh, visually, it, it was visually overwhelming almost. Just the color and the and every aspect of it. When you step through the door for the first time, and it, it really has that pan-in effect that... I think I guess it would be not a zoom in, but more almost like a zoom in tracking shot. And you go through the door into Oz for the first time. It's a stark contrast that still, it's got to be one of the best shots in movie history because you're going from one to the other. And this contrast of the drab and the replete, almost the grayness. Like, I know it was supposed to be in black and white, but the first portion or the portions in Kansas are so lacking in any discernible, like, color or shading or anything else. And then you get this blast of true color, quite literally the rainbow, into Munchkin Land. And then you pair that with all of the other things that are going on. The introduction of, okay, we're now in a completely different place. Because there are munchkins around, and there's a good witch, and there's a bad witch, and there are ruby red slippers, and there's uh, a yellow brick road. And the amount of things that you have to do within the course of that scene, and 
the amount of things that have to get introduced but don't feel forced is extraordinary. I think it's one of the great underrated possibly scenes in not only this movie, but just general movie history. Did you have another? I kind of combined all three, but I I think that you could start whistling the tune for this and most people would know it without necessarily knowing exactly what it was. And it's, if I only had a brain, a heart, or the nerve. And it's catchy. But the introduction to all three of these characters and being able to connect you with them or the endearment that you have, the scarecrow pointing in five different directions as to where the yellow brick road should lead or oil can, you know, that that sort of piece, I think is, again, a good sign that you're on a nice journey. And for as much as we've talked about other team-up movies, this might be one of the better introductions to team-ups that we've ever had. So what's your next scene then? The uh, scene in the Wicked Witch's castle, ultimately setting the scarecrow on fire and the water. I'm melting! Again, I I think there's multiple scenes to that one, so I'm going to break that up just a bit. There is the winged monkey's abducting Dorothy and then that whole conversation and her sobbing and getting locked in the tower. Then there's the lion, the scarecrow and the tin man all basically breaking into the castle and somehow passing off as guards, despite not looking like any of the guards and one of them having a tail. And I'm not sure if those were supposed to be like somehow weird fantasy Russian guards I don't know, but it, it's the same principle as like every uh, war film. Uh, it's amazing how that you can kill a German soldier in a World War II film, and automatically the uniform he has on fits you. Noted. But if you've never seen the film before, I have to imagine that the water splashing and all of that has to come completely out of left field. It is the most insane reveal in the his, in what I can think of as popular movies. Like the, the fact that the Wicked Witch could be felled by the simple water from a bucket. <laughs> also, great remaining question that I'll just drop in now. If you have a problem with water and melting, why would you keep a bucket of water placed around the castle? Uh, uh... Maybe maybe a death wish. I I do agree that it is iconic though the sequence that you get from that, and it is quite notable. Even if it is, I don't know. It's hard for me to necessarily get into context all of the things that go into that scene. Well, the uh, next scene I have denominated is also I'm going to let you know right up front is my favorite scene, which is the uh, reveal of. Uh, Toto pulling back the curtain and revealing the wizard simply because uh, I've always liked the scene. And then second, the fact that you continually point to other people and who are either intimidated or afraid of me and uh, uh, use the line, never mind the man behind the curtain. Again, I think that that works as a great analogy for a large host of different situations. 
that things are never as they truly appear and that the the people and situations that you're most afraid of often are paper tigers. Anything further? The only other scene I had uh, down was the poppy field. I think it's an iconic scene. I don't have a ton to say about it, but like I said, I was kind of grasping at straws a little bit to nominate certain things in this movie. But since you nominated your favorite scene, I'll go with, I, I do like the combination. I don't know any of the words, which is strange to me to have like a song that I don't just automatically know all the words for in a movie musical. But if I only had a brain, heart, or nerve, uh, I just like the way that all of those ended up playing out and kind of the introductions to the characters and that you can emotionally connect with them almost right off the bat as soon as any of them are introduced. Most indelible moment, how do you pick one? Like, seriously, there are so many iconic moments to this that it, trying to pick one seems almost a fool's errand. I, I actually can, and it's for reasons other than the film itself. Your favorite painting is Nighthawks by uh, Edward Hopper. Okay, And I really love Edward Hopper myself, but Nighthawks to me is not even close to his best painting. Um, I have several other paintings of his that I like, and it's because Hopper loved to paint with stark contrasting colors so that certain aspects or certain things that he wanted to emphasize popped off the canvas. And so to me, it's Munchkin Land for the very reason that the brilliance of the color and how the, the visual to me is the most indelible moment because I will always picture that as the broad palette of visual aspects of this film. The color to me is, it's one of the reasons why I love Wes Anderson films because of the color aspects of it. It, it, it It's just, it, to me, the color aspect in anything. I love the color in film. I love the color in painting and in art. I love color. Always have, always will. And to me, that's why this that scene is the most indelible to me personally. Uh, as far as iconic, this is meant to be, I know you've put it this way a couple of different times, that it's the thing that you immediately think about when you have kind of removed it from your thought and then you go back to and kind of rethink about the movie. To me, this was not so clear cut. There are so many things that are associated with this movie that are part of ingrained culture. And we've already discussed, I don't know, probably 20 of them that are easily notable from this movie. But if I had to pick one thing that I think if you mentioned it to anybody, immediately they'd know exactly what you're talking about, know the reference, and know the movie, is Yellow Brick Road. I think the Yellow Brick Road by itself is just super iconic to this movie because it's symbolism of the journey and of Oz itself. So let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, in memoriam, uh, Biz Markey, a rapper-actor, most known for his song Just a Friend, 
but he was also in such classics as Sharknado 2, Men in Black 2, Yo Gabba Gabba? Yo Gabba Gabba. Yo Gabba Gabba and Crank Yankers. Yes, his rap career was much more distinguished, and he's being celebrated more by the hip-hop community, but he does have a general connection to the acting community, I suppose. Okay. By the way, I just wanted to indicate this show, uh, I said what I was going to dedicate to my friend Jen, I'll let her know. Friend of the show, friend of mine, who continually listens to us and gives me constant feedback on things. And in part, I let her pick this show in. Uh, We had two different options. I asked her which she thought would be best, and she convinced me that this was the better episode for 75. So dedicated to her. Thank you very much for the help you give us behind the scenes by uh, giving me at least feedback. Thank you. And a thank you from me as well. With that, let's move into... Best funniest lines, and while I don't think a ton of these are funny per se, I think almost all of them are going to need no context because everybody's probably heard them a thousand times. (laughs) So you can start, Pop. There's no place like home. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. How do you talk if you don't have a brain? Well, some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Now those magic slippers will take you home in two seconds. Dorothy. Oh, Toto too? Toto too. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my! It's a twister, it's a twister! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Well, over the rainbow, hey up. We represent the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild, the Lollipop Guild, and in the name of the Lollipop Guild, we wish to welcome you to Munchkin Land. He said oil can. Oil can what? Put him up, put him up. You're stepping on my tail. I'm melting! Melting! Oh, what a world! What a world! She's not only merely dead, she's sincerely dead. I don't have any others. I think that covers it. If we missed one, I'm pretty sure that everybody would help us out on that one and uh, let us know. So, best song, I went with Over the Rainbow. I think there are several others you could nominate, but I, I think that's the most iconic. It is, I mean... Not far behind is we're off to see the wizard. Uh, Ding dong, the witch is dead. Wicked witch, the wicked witch. You've sang that one on multiple occasions due to your law practice. Yeah, well, I I used to start a rendition of that every time we had a substitute teacher. (laughs) I was a little shit when I was in high school. Yeah, and then you passed it on to me. Well, and the thing was, is, is that I look so innocent that I'd get away with so much. All right, let's move over to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first, or should I? Feel free. I'm not even going to split this one up. When you're talking about the movie that might be the most watched of all time, what else would make a 10? 
the amount of pop cultural references held by this movie for more than 80 years <laughs> is possibly one of the most significant in the history of film. I think everybody has had alarm bells going off in their head for things they recognize throughout the course of the episode so far. I don't need to make much more of an argument. It's a straight fucking 10. Uh, 10. So do you need any help with the math? Not at all. I mean, I, I started to think about this and I was going, well, what is it 9.5? And I'm going, well, what the hell's a 10 then? So I'm like, straight 10. All the things that we've used to knock down other movies that we've had to this point. People don't view it. People don't know it. None of them seem to apply for this movie. I, I think you can make an argument for the next category that its impact or significance in the moment isn't as great as its legacy is. But literally, this film was shown on TV for like 35 years straight. Yes. Annually. And it like was one of the biggest events that was on every Christmas or every New Year's for people. Like, yeah. you, you hear... People describe or talk about, oh, we can't miss The Wizard of Oz on cable TV or on network TV this year. It is one of the most iconic movies. Kids today know this movie. Maybe not nearly as much, but it's just, it's lived with us for so long and is so ingrained that you barely need to mention some of these terms and everybody immediately knows what you're talking about. How about the fact that we've had live action, live televised playing of the film as a play? How about the fact that we had a huge Broadway hit and a film uh, with an African-American cast, The Wiz? I mean, this is just culturally across, across multiple aspects. We had a prequel film not more than like 10 years ago. With um, James Franco. I don't even remember that, but okay. Honestly, it didn't need to be done. It's basically an entire movie out of one small story from the end of this movie. How the wizard got to Oz in his balloon. <laughs> okay. I don't know why we, we needed to have another movie based on that, but you're just playing off the back of this. Regardless... Let's just move to impact significance, because I think that's where you have the stark contrast. There are definitely movies that are bigger in the moment than tail off. And then there are movies that build up momentum over time. This is the latter. I know you've often quoted and probably not been correct, but stating that this movie was not successful and didn't make its money back until it started being on television. It's not quite accurate. It did have a profit in its initial run. But I, I quoted the numbers before partially on that. But for what the studio considered a great financial success and the amount of money that they pumped into this, I don't think it was widely considered that way until that time. I did not know it was re-released in 1949, but my understanding, and I got this from, uh, I can't remember where, but that it wasn't until it was started to be broadcast in the early 50s on television that it ultimately made its profit. There are actually a lot of myths regarding that that just are not actually based in some level of fact. So I don't, I'm not faulting you for taking that up, but more or less that this is a widely shared myth that actually is incorrect. Seemingly, this movie was somewhat successful and it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. 
but this is a higher impact legacy movie than it ever was something at the time. When it was made, I think it kind of was a nice movie, but I don't think anybody nearly had the same level of affinity and connection and emotional pull that when it started being shown annually on television and it became an event almost that people had the same affinity for it. So I went with a three for the industry because I think it is significant in how movies were made that this is widely recognized by a lot of people as being the first in color movie and that the, the direction and the color and the staging and the setting and fantasy movies, because I don't think there were a lot of fantasy quote unquote movies until this movie. So you could really say that this somewhat kicked off the genre or at least what was possible from the movies going forward. This and Gone with the Wind as being the two primary epics really set the stage for what movies could become going forward. That you could create bigger sets, bigger stages, uh, more effects. I know there were a few movies where you could do some bigger budget stuff, but didn't necessarily have the same pull as those two movies. So I gave it kind of a three because I think it was recognized, but I didn't necessarily think that it was the most important in the initial run, because I think that something like Gone with the Wind might have had more impact in the moment as to industry, even though it was critically well-reviewed. I did give it a 3.5 for the audience, because I think that generally this was a relatively successful film. But given its budget and scale, I think that kind of holds it back on why it's got this reputation for being a flop initially. Uh, So I ended up with a 6.5. I gave it a four for uh, the industry. Two aspects. I think this film opened the door for, and I believe it's Busby Berkeley, which was the big show, Tunes of the 40s, where it was the uh, synchronized swimming and the whole elaborate scenes of dancing and in Technicolor and all that. The other aspect is, is, I don't think if you have The Wizard of Oz, you have Walt Disney today. Because it was not long after The Wizard of Oz that Disney did Sleeping Beauty. No, you're talking about Snow White. Excuse me. Did Snow White. See, I want to say Fantasia was before that in 1940, and I want to say Snow White was 1941. I I think that it opened the door to that kind of visual aspect, and it became clear that animation was going to be easier and less expensive to do, to have the same level of fantasy, and I think that opened the door to animation in film and kind of made it a mainstream product. So to that extent, I went, you know, I think, and I think I'm actually convincing myself otherwise. I had said uh, a four, but actually, given that fact, I'm going to give it a five. I'm going to change my answer. And as far as uh, impact and significant from the cultural standpoint, it did not do as well as expected. I think there was a large aspect that the, the studio thought it would do much better than it did. Pumped a lot of money in, and it's still just kind of was there. So I'm going to go with a three. So with an eight total. 
So that's 7.25 average between us. Novelty, why don't you take this one first? I started thinking, I mean, this is early days. I mean, we're talking 10 years of talkies and where we had advanced. And there just wasn't anything else like this. So I went with a nine simply because of the fantasy aspects. Actually, I'm going to raise my number to a 9.5 because of the Technicolor aspect of this. And the only reason I wouldn't give it a full 10 is because it wasn't the first Technicolor film. In fact, it wasn't the only Technicolor film of that year. So that's the only reason I would downgrade it based on the novelty. Gone with the Wind being the other big one. But I think the visuals are much more striking for this one as far as being in color and making that direct contrast. I, I think that is a high grade to its level of novelty. But this wasn't the first musical. Uh, I can at least note multiple other talky musicals that had won awards and done some different things. And there were some show pieces. It was not the first fantasy movie because we had had, I guess, if you want to call them, some of the horror classics before that. It was not necessarily uh, the first kids movie, per se. But in a lot of ways, it marks a stark difference between what came before it and everything that was possible after it. This was novel for being a musical, for being a fantasy movie, for being the movie that was an event that was shown annually on TV. I, I don't think you could take that away from it for being one of the first movies that's introduced to generations of children. I don't think there was anything in this style of viewing for kids until the Disney animated movies that you mentioned, but those are animated. This is doing a lot more and a lot heavier lifting and is just beloved for the shots that it took and landed. I just don't see there being too much else like this until you get maybe to the 50s and the 60s where you had some other Disney live action movies. There just wasn't an audience or a lot of movies made specifically for children in the way that this was that could animate and excite them in ways that you wouldn't get with almost any other movie. So I went with a 9.5 as well. You hit my number right on the dot. Classicness. Normally, I would let you go first on this one, but when you think of classicness, I don't think this has really aged poorly at all. It is relatable and special to every new group of people introduced to it. There is not literally one thing I can pull out of here. Yes, it's slightly scary in some parts, but uh, part of that is the fantasy elements, and it's not too scary. Nothing in here seems particularly out of place other than maybe the Kansas scenes, but even that could be explained away. And there's that weird myth of the guy who supposedly hung himself in the back of this, but that's all it is, is a supposedly a myth. So outside of that, which you wouldn't know if you were three and you were seeing this for the first time, I had to give it a straight 10. I don't know if we've ever done classicness at a 10, but I don't know how, if this isn't a 10 for classicness, again, what else is? I did not give it a 10. That's fine. And I, I went with a 9, and I gave it a point down simply because of Munchkinland. There's a certain aspect of having having little people, and 
I, I felt a little uncomfortable at moments about it being exploitive of their position. Maybe I'm as a uh, five foot three man, a little hypersensitive about height, <laughs> but uh, I, I that was my moment of uncomfortability with the film, and uh, so that's why I gave it a demerit for that. I, I suppose I can see it. I think it may be harsh to give it a full point for that. But that being said, I, I I understand it. I just don't necessarily. It's never entered my mind. It never bothered me at all. I mean, there there's almost no other element to this movie that I think you could pull out and have that level of commentary on it. There just aren't pieces there that it doesn't get into politics. It doesn't get into race. It doesn't get into class a lot. It just kind of is. I mean, it, it's good it's wholesome it's american it's mom mac and cheese and apple pie i mean quite literally i I think that this is one of the defining american cultural movies but anyway the average between us then would be a 9.5 and i think there's only one score classicness wise that would beat it out okay rewatchability i had a seven should i watch it more than once every 20 years yes um, do I want, need to watch it more than every three years? No. Is it something that I would love to watch with grandchildren someday? Yes. If it's on, will I stop and watch it? Yes. Am I going to go out of my way to watch it? Eh, probably not. So I went with a middle mark. For me, fit with a lot of movies that I've classified as a seven. Movies that I like, that I enjoy, I just don't actively like put on. I've seen this thing hovering around on one of the streamers multiple times over, and I'm just like, nah, I'm good. And for being a classic, it's just never appealed to me that this is one I would just automatically go back to. Now, to be fair, I don't return to a lot of movies very often right now. I've kind of made a pact with myself in order to not rewatch a lot of things other than for stuff for the show. But I ended up giving it an extra half a point for how rewatchable it is to everybody else. I mean, there's a reason this was on for 30 some odd years annually. I don't think that can be denied. And while this is a subjective category, I'm going to give it an extra half a point because I know it may not necessarily be yours or my viewing, but it shouldn't get discounted full points completely for that being the fact. Because I think if you, you were to put on certain other people that grew up and were much more fond of this movie, this category would move up very quickly. So what was your number? I ended up at a 7.5. All right. So that's 7.25 between us. So to recap then, we had a 10 for Legacy. We had a 7.25 for Impact Significance. We had a 9.5 for Novelty, a 9.5 for Classicness, a 7.25 for Rewatchability, And the audience score, we had an 86% for Google users, 89% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.75. All total, that is 52.25, would place it in between Groundhog Day and Jaws on the list. Wow. So in the top 10, about where it should be. Yep. I'm a little surprised. I know we have a, a fondness for Groundhog Day, but how well it's kind of held up in that top 10 right now. Yeah. And I I don't think that's by mistake. I think that is a movie that 
I think we appreciate a lot more and think is underappreciated by the, the general public for how great a movie it is as a comedy, but also philosophical and spiritual in many ways. Well, and I uh, honestly, people who have not either watched Groundhog Day before who have recommended it to have commented how good a film it really is. And then people who have seen it before, but then I point out to them that it's more than just a comedy. You have to watch it for the commentary that it provides who have realized that it's a much better film than they originally thought. All right. So let's go to remaining questions then. Does Miss Gulch come back to get Toto? Uh, I don't know. She was in the tornado, so maybe she just disappeared. Or maybe she's in another place other than uh, the Land of Oz. I don't know. The dog escapes, and then there's the twister, and then everybody wakes up and everything's fine. Like, if she's still surviving, you have to imagine she's coming back for the dog. Also, why is she so cantankerous if she owns that much of the county? Well... Should we talk about uh, a particular wheelchaired villain in a classic Christmas film? Yeah, I drew similarities immediately to that as well. Did you have any remaining questions? Not really, other than if Dorothy could get home by just clicking her heels, why did she need to go on the yellow brick road and go to Oz? That is kind of explained away by Glinda in the end of the film that she needed to realize that she had the ability to go home all along. It's not a great explanation, but it is (laughs) at least addressed. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Any other questions? No, I don't have any other questions. All right. Final thoughts for the week then. 75. It's, uh, I didn't know we would ever get to this point, and quite frankly, I'm looking forward to episode uh, 750 for this matter at this point in time. So that may be, that may be a few too many. I mean, we haven't even hit the first hundred yet, and I don't think we're going to do that in the calendar year. But yeah, we got a long ways to go. There are a lot of films that I started thinking about, and I'm like, oh, that would be cool. Oh, well. We already have like the next 20 mapped out. Just talking about, I mean, you can, you can pick an actor, for example, you can list, uh, you know, I, your mother really likes Jack Lemon and uh, had commented, but I can name like five films of Jack Lemon that we should be doing. And that doesn't even cover the wide range of his uh, movie catalog. Oh, I know we've done two of his already. But uh, we've only done a, a couple of Cary Grants. We've only done a couple of Jimmy Stewart. We have not covered at all certain directors. Um, the most decorated or the most uh, Academy Award uh, winning actors, one of which is Spencer Tracy. We've yet to do one of his films. We haven't covered a Daniel Day-Lewis film. We haven't covered Jack Nicholson. Those are the two highest winners. Have we done anything with Tom Green? No, and I doubt that we would, unless we do Road Trip. But that's going to be another one of those, like, April Fool's episodes where we just <laughs> fuck with the audience. But uh, any anything else, I guess? Uh, I just want to thank the listeners for 75 episodes. And, um, I mean, what started out as basically a project of love, I hope 
people understand we're doing this basically to promote movies and to encourage people to watch things that they normally had not thought of or seen or even knew about. And I hope that uh, if you enjoy the show, that you pass it along to others. We would love to have a a wide audience so that we have some ability in the future to uh, really kind of impact uh, what people are watching and what people are enjoying and and how movies uh, are both watched, enjoyed, streamed, however you want to say in the future. So I will say one of the things that I enjoy the most is introducing or being introduced to new material and really enjoying it. And if I've been able to do that at all for anybody, it's made 75 episodes of sweat and tears and love and appreciation worthwhile as far as I care. I know movies are in a very difficult situation that everything is TV and every or all TV is movies, but there is so much yet to be conveyed for art and culture and what is possible and escapism and the amount of storytelling that we can still do, especially in the right hands, but it's got to have people there to appreciate it. And I'll be there. I hope the rest of you will join me as well. All right. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week we will be, I don't know, possibly covering several different movies. We had a plan to do a Jaws revisit, but uh, we'll see if that actually pans out, at least in the timeline that we felt. So... I guess I'll just say, see a good movie this week. Uh, Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at DanaWDuncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate Network.